right, welcome everyone to this week's episode of our show, True Data Ops. I'm your host, Kent Graziano, the Data Warrior. Now, each week we try to bring you a podcast covering all things data ops with the people who are making data ops what it is today. So today I have a special guest uh, for this episode, speaker, podcaster, and thought leader, my friend Sanjeev Mohan. Welcome to the show, Sanjeev. Thank you so much, Kent. Such a pleasure. Roles have reversed. You were on yeah. my podcast, now I'm on your podcast. That's right. Yeah, turn, as they say, turnabout is fair play. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So for uh, uh, folks that are, are, are new to the show and uh, are not familiar with you, could you give us a little bit of your uh, background in data management? Yeah, it's, uh, thanks for asking. I have been in this uh, space uh, far too long, over three decades now. I started my career at Oracle in the early 90s when... I thought databases were the hottest things uh, happening on the planet. And I was really into data, everything to do with uh, databases. It was still very early days. But then uh, the whole dot-com revolution started. And I'm like, enough of data. I'm going into the dot-com space. So there's a lot of consulting, uh, building websites. But then uh, that whole thing, we know dot-com bust happened. So uh, and by that time, Interestingly, data had become super exciting space once again because Hadoop had taken off, NoSQL had taken off, then cloud computing had taken off. So all of a sudden, we started seeing this massive uh, emergence of uh, everything data. That brought me running back into the data space. And then I became an analyst for Gartner. I spent many years uh, in the data and analytics space, uh, enjoyed every minute of learning, networking, keeping up with, with technology. And then about two years ago, I decided to go independent. Not, not uh, it'll be two years in July. So now I feel liberated, to be honest, because now <laughs> I can search anything to make things uh, exciting. Although I'm like really deep into data, data mesh, data product, data governance, uh, generative AI has happened. So now I can just add on to that. So it's a very exciting time of our lives. Yeah, yeah. Um, so what version of Oracle did you start with? Uh, Oracle version 5. And Same as I did. 5.1. That's when I got started as well. Yeah. yeah. In fact, even now, one of my favorite versions was Oracle 6.033. For some reason... That was really amazing. And I still remember when Larry Ellison decided to move up the date to, to, uh, to get Oracle 7 out. And we went to this theater in Redwood Shores, Circle Theater, something like that. It doesn't exist anymore. Uh, that was, that was a kind of a family theater for the entire company. Uh, when yeah. Jurassic Park came out, we went to that you know, as a company. So so Larry Listen was doing his demo of Oracle 7 launch in New York and the demo failed, live demo, it did not work. And we were in that theater watching that. Oh no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, it, yeah, not too, not too uh, atypical at the time. I remember a number of, uh, Oracle user group conferences where things like that didn't quite go as planned. Um, but yeah, it's, it, it was an exciting time. Like you said, yeah, databases were the hottest thing. I had been doing DBase and things and then got uh, introduced to Oracle. And I was like, yeah, this is, 
this is good stuff. This is going to be fun. Yes. I spent 10 years, by the way, speaking consecutively at Oracle, Open World, in the U.S. and, and Europe. It yeah. was, those were just amazing days. Uh, yeah, my uh, we were just thinking about this the other day. My first trip to Europe ever hmm. was 1995 to speak at the European Oracle User Group Conference in Florence, Italy. I was there, yes. Uh, well, we crossed paths that long ago then, my friend. <laughs> yes. Wow. Yeah, wow. that was that was my first trip to Europe ever. And, uh, for, you know, first uh, uh, speak, speaking experience outside of the United States. Yeah. Yeah. European Oracle Users Group always took place uh, during the Easter break, uh, Samana Center, like end of March. And it was like pretty cold. Uh, from Florence, I think, two, then it was Amsterdam, two years it was in Vienna. Yep. So, so we were at the same place. And Copenhagen. And Copenhagen, yes. yes. Yep. 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 Yeah, I yeah, know. Yeah. I was I was at all of those. Yeah, and I remember because we uh, were in Milan after the conference and it was for Palm Sunday. Uh, That's one, one of the things I remember. But then, oddly, they said it was unseasonably warm. It was like 80 degrees in Milan there in the middle of April, which was wow. just bizarre but in florence uh, that year uh, 1995 i discovered i'm um, amaretto there was a party in a bar it's like all you can drink and i'm like what is amaretto you know so that's just <laughs> memory from that trip <laughs> yeah well so um get get to our actual topic here this is this is fun i love talking about this stuff and you know the intersections in our industry our industry is so small compared to what, what some other industries are that we have these things where we've all crossed paths over the last uh, couple of decades. Uh, so what are you seeing today? I mean, you used to be a Gartner analyst and you yeah. now are kind of an independent analyst. So what, what are you seeing out there in the data world today that you, you think is hot and that we should be paying attention to? So Kent, uh, the, the change that happened this year and I'm not even going to generative AI and all that right now. That that's all, of course, the thing happening. But the change is that last year around this time, money was being spent like water. This year, because of the economy, there is a very strict uh, move to to do what we call like FinOps, for example. So the financial management, getting that efficiency into your data and analytics space has become extremely important. We, and it's not like people are cutting down on, on data. That's, that's not at all what's happening. People are say, saying, find me the most cost-effective way of doing more with my data because I have more data, I have more consumers, and I have... And I want to put more use cases uh, in production. So to some extent, data is a victim of its own success. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Early, early days with the cloud and all, we could just sort of just throw resources at it. And that's kind of what companies do, just throw compute at it and Correct. makes everything work and we get the answers. But yeah, the data has grown to the point that Correct. it's uh, irresponsible to do that now, right? Correct. And it is, and talking about responsibility, it is not everybody's responsibility. I remember in the early days of when cloud computing came out and this notion of FinOps came up, the CFO would have a team under him or her to manage uh, audit and you know account for the cost. But who is incurring the cost? Is it the CFO? No, absolutely not. It's a no. developer. 
So, so this is why things like data ops are so critical because you need that that FinOps culture to permeate into the entire organization. Anybody who's using the cloud, for instance, because they are the ones who are generating the cost. If they write a bad SQL query, then I want to know about it and maybe kill it before I get a bill for twenty thousand dollars. Right. Yes. And yeah, you and I both know organizations where that happened, where people got the surprise bill and like, what happened here? And, oh, yeah, we had a process that ran for 40 hours that we thought was going to run in 10. And nobody thought to stop it because they launched it Friday afternoon and came back on Monday and it had just barely finished. Yeah, Ken, so you remember how we, we all used to joke, I'm sure, you know, about some newbie SQL developer did a Cartesian join of two tables with a million rows. So oh, yeah. that was that was a that was a bad joke, but today that'd be a very expensive joke because now it's not even a million; it's a billion rows. So so the ec- economics have changed. In the past, if somebody ran the Cartesian join, what would it do? It would slow down the system to crawl. The DBA would go go through the logs, find the errant SQL, and kill it, and yep. then you'd be back to normal. But Today, that that can be a very expensive mistake. Yeah, yeah, because now, because of the fact that we have things like separation of compute from storage, it's very easy for somebody to launch something like that and nobody actually notice because it doesn't impact anybody else like, like it did in the past with Oracle and Teradata and company and uh, products like that where, yeah, you would notice it goes slow down. And I had one instance where we launched some ETL and it basically locked out every other process on the Oracle server and the, the, the phones lit up within 30 seconds. What happened to my screen? What happened to my report? What happened? It's like, everything stopped. Like, oops, oopsie, (laughs) go kill it. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. So that's it. That financial observability has become very, very important. So I I want to share something interesting since we are, we are talking about some nostalgia here. I was in Oracle, uh, had created a group called the Escalation Center for all the top customers. So if they had any production problem, they had a hotline like 9X, Bell Atlantic, all these old, old companies that don't even exist anymore. So they, so it was quite common for me to get a call that a database was corrupted and the backups did not work. and. I was like, you're not trained to go and recover a corrupt database by looking into the header. The only problem was when I would call back these uh, top-notch companies, the DB had been fired. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oops. (laughs) Yeah, that's definitely a problem. Um, So let's talk about data ops for a second here. Uh, You know, you've, you've been around obviously, you know, decades like I have. And this data ops thing is, you know, relatively new. It's not brand spanking new, but it's it's getting uh, a lot more acceptance. Do you think that uh, adopting some form of data ops is going to be, you know, kind of a requirement for organizations to continue to be successful in, in today's world, especially considering this FinOps stuff? Yeah. So uh, first of all, when, you know, people are skeptics of technology, data ops being one of them, you know, they, they sort of confront me and say, oh, what's the point of data? I've been doing this forever. So it, what is it? Is it? So what I tell people is that 
that you've got the data producers and the data consumers. Everything that happens in between is some sort of data management or governance. So how you connect these two is all that data management, but how well you do it is data ops. So, so if you don't have data ops, you can manually run your test scripts. No one's stopping you from doing it, but if you miss thing, then you know what's going to happen? The, the CFO is the first one who's going to find out that my dashboard is broken. Imagine what, what kind of trust your team will have when that happens. So, automate, so if you're repeating something, you automate it. That's part of, uh, of uh, data ops. If you are going to run a, a series of, of uh, stages or steps, then orchestrate it through a tool. That is data ops. If you are going to test something, which obviously you should, test it as far left as you can and continuously test it using these, these built-in scripts. Uh, that is data ops. So data ops really is no longer optional because I cannot do these things manually. The volume and the speed at which I'm required to react is so high that I need data ops. Otherwise, uh, I, my business, my organization is going to uh, be eaten up by its competition. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, with all the companies and, and such that you you analyzed when you were at Gartner, you've consulted all over the world. Do you think are there any companies or industries where you don't th where they don't need to be worried about data ops? Do you think that that's even an option somewhere to say, oh yeah, yeah, we we got it handled, we're, we're okay. That, that's a great question, Kent. I've, I've never been asked that question before, but let me let me uh, bring to your your attention. There's a study, I think, Ponemon Ponemon Institute. I don't know how to pronounce the name. They did this uh, this uh, uh, survey, and this is not the only survey. There are many surveys that show even a small uh, enterprise, small medium enterprise, now has over one hundred SaaS tools. One hundred. Wow. You know, whether you, like it's Jira, Confluent, Marketo, Zoho. I mean, you just name it. You know, Outlook, uh, Microsoft three hundred and sixty, or Google. yeah, I guess yeah. People don't even think about that, right? When we talk about SaaS, they they a lot of people don't even realize that right. hey, your email system is a SaaS product, and it's probably hosted in the cloud. Yes. So, so the the point here that I'm trying to make is that. I, I would have said some years ago, if you're a small company, don't worry about data ops. You know, you got a bigger fish to fry. So concentrate on your product. But if you're concentrating on your product and for congratulations to you, your product takes off. Now, guess what? You cannot scale. So why would you not put data ops? Data ops, by the way, is not a, uh, it, it's a discipline, Right. Right. <clears throat> So why would you not have good discipline? You know, it's well, like, yeah, that, that, that's a question that I, you and I have probably both been asking for 30 years at a lot of organizations. Yeah, yeah. yeah. you see, the, the thing is that the scenario was very different during my Oracle days. There was no concept of you write a store procedure and then you have some sort of dev to uh, test, to prod, you have A-B testing. We didn't have those tools at that time. But today we do, and and software development incorporated uh, 
uh, some like DevOps principles more than 10 years ago, you know, agile, uh, SRE, all of those things. So now it's time for data to do the same. Yeah. Oh, and that's interesting you bring that up because the same thing happened with agile, right? The software world yeah. created agile basically and adopted it. And it was, you know, probably close to 10 years before people in the data world started looking at going, you know, we could we could adopt some of these things to the data world. It's it's a little different, right? You you don't have uh, you know completely interchangeable team me members where everybody's a Java programmer because now we got DBAs, we got ETL developers, we got report writers. So we got to do it a little different, but the principles are still good. And so now we're seeing the same thing in the data world with DevOps principles evolving into data ops because it is it is truly it's more than just DevOps for data because there's a lot of things we have to do in data that you didn't have to do with software. Yeah, see, see, this is this is what I've been trying to to explain to people is that that yes, it took us ten years to get data ops to the, to get to the space where applications were, but then that's because data is a different beast by itself. Yes, changing all the time. Every single time you think you've nailed it, some anomaly will come in your source system for which you have not created a data quality rule and it breaks something down downstream. How often does your application change? Yes, it changes, but not that frequently, but data is constantly changing. And, uh, you know, so, so things take a bit of a time to come into the data space. Yeah, and I think that's, you know, one of the seven pillars of true data ops is the automated testing and monitoring. It's, Correct. yeah. Yeah, if you don't have the monitoring in there, then things can happen in your production right. data platform with new data coming in from an existing source. It's something changed on that source and you haven't got the monitoring in place, things may break because, yeah, it tested great when you moved everything to production. But then you get, like you said, some you know anomalies in the data or just pure changes and differences in the type of data that's coming in that you didn't anticipate. Yeah, but when, when the pandemic started, all of a sudden the sale of shirts and ties went through the roof, but not the pants. Yes, that's right. <laughs> Why? You know, so my, my point is that certainly the data chain, is that an anomaly? Well, you know, the application was the same. You went to amazon.com to buy these, these items, except you were no longer <laughs> Pants, you know, so. <laughs> yeah, and that's again, that's things happen in the world that right. don't anticipate, right? Yes. And as much forecasting as anyone could have done, that sort of thing, there was no historical data that would have led you to the conclusion that we're going to have a drop in the sales of pants at right. some point in our fiscal year right. because, yeah, we had never had a pandemic like this before in a modern world where we had technology like what we're using today for the podcast, right? It didn't exist a decade before. And so there's there's no way all those factors came together to have a completely different sales trend. There's no way you could have predicted it because there was no historical precedent for it. Pandemic for pants. Pandemic. <laughs> a pantsdemic. <laughs> Sorry, I that joke. Sorry. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> that that's pretty good. So um you you mentioned before a little bit about generative AI and you know AI and LLMs and all that are, are another hot topic. 
How do you see that playing here in the in the data ops world? Is is there a role there? Yeah. So great question. I've been thinking a lot about what is the intersection of data products and LLMs. And at this point, uh, by the way, everything I say is subject to change uh, within hours, days, weeks. Uh, <laughs> great so, disclaimer. <laughs> yes, disclaimer. So I see, I see LLMs have two roles to play in data products. The first role is, is uh, in front of uh, data products, and the second is behind. So let's talk about the front. In front, what I mean is that if I have a data product today, I use a data product uh, as my sort of a self-contained place to get answers for my business questions. Uh, the data product is sort of abstracting the physical uh, layers from where the data is being joined and and uh, you know made uh, accessible, available to me. Now, I still have to use this data product. I may put a dashboard on top. I may write a, a SQL query on top. Or, or call an API to this data product. An LLM in front certainly gives me natural language uh, capabilities. So if I have a chatbot and I can ask a chatbot that, you know, show me, show me uh, what are Kent's most successful projects from 1995 to 1997. I'm being very, very specific. Yeah, so, yeah. And then I say, okay, now that you have my, my answer, so narrow this context by only the projects that were done in martial arts, just making it up as I go. So I can like, keep asking this question. So all of a sudden, my data product is more than uh, democratized because all these uh, business people can now intuitively start asking questions. So that is the one use case I see of LLM as a front end. The second use case I see with LLM is that it can train itself using data product as a foundation. What I mean by that is today we know how we how these uh, LLMs are being trained. We are going to raw data, whether it's all of internet or it's some some database with no curation. So that's yes. why we get into all this problem with hallucination. So, so what I'm saying is that a data product has a data product owner who is responsible and guaranteeing the specifications, quality, accessibility, uh, trustworthiness, uh, reliability. So now the LLM can train on the data product, which is already trusted. So hopefully we can reduce the hallucination by using uh, the data product as the basis to train an LLM. Yeah, and I, I think people, a lot of people miss that. I, I see a lot of people writing about this, but I think a lot of people still kind of miss the, the nuance there is that when we're talking about you know, training an AI, you know, doing machine learning is that it can only learn based on what information we give it. And if we give it bad data, the results are going to be not what we want. And if we teach a child that two plus two is five, the child will be wrong for the rest of their life because they only know two plus two is five. They, they don't know that two plus two is four and you can't, you can't ask them. So yeah. they can't correct that on their own because we gave them the wrong information and these learning models yeah. are the same way. 
they, they only know what we give it. So if we're not careful, and I think this is like, like you said, it's a good role for curated data products, oh, what we probably used to call in the old days, a data warehouse or a data mart, you know, think in terms of that. If the quality of the data in there is bad, then the output of these learning models is also going to be skewed at best. Right. So, you know, another point I, I want uh, to mention, because listening to you, it reminded me, one of the, when you mentioned data marts, for instance, so the question comes up, is data mart a data product? Why, why exactly. not? It's curated. But, but there's a very big difference in uh, the way we did things in the past and the way we, we do things now. And that difference is called product management. Yeah. We, when we build these data marts, uh, and correct me, uh, Ken, you you uh, far, you have far more experience, but when we built these data marts, it was a project. We did that project, and then the, it was like, okay, now a new fire has broken out in the organization. The team disbanded, and you go there, and you go do this project. What happened to that data mart? It would just stay around forever till the time came to move to the cloud, and God forbid if we did lift and shift, then we moved it to the cloud. Yes, so producing the wrong things faster. Yes. So, by the way, the same thing happens even in machine learning models. We don't retire these machine learning models because it's a project and the project comes to an end, but the artifacts stay around, those temporary tables stay around, views stay material. Huge problem. Yeah, it's a huge problem. Now, now what happens is, is uh, a new person in an organization says, I want to run customer churn model. My Python skills are not that great. Let me poke around and say, oh, wait, here is a uh, customer churn model that somebody on my team made. They run it, except that model was trained 18 months ago. Yes. So now they get the wrong data. So. So, and that's, I guess that's really where that intersection with data ops is, because part of data ops is environment management and, like you said, product yes, management. Exactly. And, and, it, and, and data products uh, ideally are built for purpose, right? And with the end use in mind, the, the target audience, the target consumer in mind. And while, like you said, data marts in the past, you know, there was probably some initial things, but it might have been a lot more general. Okay, we, we need to be able to analyze sales data based on these 15 dimensions. Okay, so we, we built that. But then, hey, if there was a new dimension that was needed, that required a whole new project. And the old one might be left there and somebody's trying to do the analysis and they don't have the information. So just like what you said, with machine learning models, it was trained on data from 18 months, two years ago, and right. the data has changed. and Correct the model needs to now be retrained. And so somewhere we've got to be, you know, uh, managing that, the, the life cycle of the model itself right. and whether or not it should still be in production or should it be removed from production or does it need to be refactored? Right. All of those things now come into question, uh, just like in software development. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the so Kent, uh, the uh, issue that I, I see that, that has happened is that, you and I were used to a certain way of operating on-premises, which was the only way. You know, you had to go procure the hardware, uh, do your data model, do it, you know, uh, in a very uh, conservative manner because storage cost a lot, CPUs cost a lot. But when we moved to the cloud, the paradigm changed. But we 
uh, a lot of us, we didn't change the way we do things differently in the cloud. We brought all those habits into the cloud. Good and uh, bad. <laughs> yeah, good and bad. So, I, and, and the beauty of cloud is that it's super easy, super fast to build anything. Anyone who with some basic skills can put his or her credit card down, get an environment, start building stuff. The problem happens when you have to run it and you have to maintain it and you have to keep it for the rest of your, that's when the cost goes up and the risk goes up. This is where data ops comes in. And this is where data products and the discipline and all these things that we're talking about becomes really important because it's not sustainable. Yeah. Well, uh, we, we've pretty much run through our time already. It's like we could keep going. You and I could go for probably hours talking on all these topics. Um, I wanted to give you a chance, though, to let people know how they could follow you, keep in touch with you, tell them about your podcast and, and where, to, where to find that so they can listen in on some of your other discussions. Yeah, thank you so much uh, for uh, giving me that, that opportunity to uh, talk about some of the things I do. I have a, a Medium website. Very easy to get to. It's called sanchmo.medium.com. I have a, a podcast series I do called It Depends. Uh, a little bit harder to get to. I can share the links. Uh, but I write also on Forbes and I have my website. I'm excited about an unconference that I'm going to announce within the next day or two. Okay, um, I was going to ask you about upcoming events. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, so so June so June is going to be super exciting. We've got Snowflake, DataBricks, MongoDB, uh, my own unconference, which I've been planning for a year and a half since I went independent. Uh, on and the topic is going to be what should your modern data strategy and architecture be for generative AI. So first of its kind that I'm doing. Uh, so a bit nervous how it goes. If it's successful, then hopefully do do it more frequently. And, and, and of course, everybody can find you on LinkedIn, right? That is the best way to reach me. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So if you're you're all watching this podcast on LinkedIn, somewhere in there, you'll should see uh, Sanji's name and a link to his LinkedIn profile, uh, so you can connect with him that way. And if you do, just you know, do him a favor and say, "Hey, I saw your podcast with Kent," so that he yeah. knows why you're connecting with him. Yes. All right. Well, well, thank you again, Sanji, for, for being my guest. This has been an awesome conversation. Um, like I said, I know we could go on and on and on about these topics uh, between the two of us probably for, for literally for days. Um, so, but thank you for being here. Thanks everyone for, uh, for listening in. And if you're watching this on replay, thanks for watching the replay. Uh, be sure to join us uh, next time. My guest is going to be the co-founder and CTO of DataOps.Live, my good friend Guy Adams. So keep an eye on your feed uh, to register for that and see what topics Guy's going to throw at us. Uh, be sure to like the replays and every time we uh, uh, we tweet and post about this and tell all your friends about the True Data Ops podcast. Um, and then you can head over to, if you go to TrueDataOps.org, you can sign up there for reminders about the podcast so you don't miss any of our episodes. All right, well, uh, everyone have, uh, have a great week. And until next time, this is Kent Graziano, the Data Warrior, signing off for now.